Welcome to The History of the Christian Church, Season 1, with Lance Rolston. This 63rd episode is titled, Invested. Now, we've just concluded a series on medieval monasticism and returned to the narrative of the church during the Middle Ages in Europe. Before we do, let's remember that the story of church history is much bigger than just what happened in Europe. Until recently, church history spent most of its time on the Western church and only touched on other places as it related to the Western narrative. We're trying to broaden our horizons, although it's tough because, well, the source material for the history of the church beyond the Western realm is much slimmer. It isn't that there isn't any, there's quite a bit actually, but it's not presented in the popular format that commends a layman's format. And an historical layman is certainly what I am. So it's thick wading through most of it. With that said, back to the church in the European Middle Ages. We have several themes and topics to develop now. It's going to take a few episodes to do so. The first that we'll look at, because it ends up being a recurring problem, is what's called the investiture controversy. This was a theological and political dust-up that came about as a result of the fusion of church and state in feudal Europe. Church officials had both religious and secular roles. Though they weren't part of the official nobility, they did hold positions in the very strict social structure of the feudal system. Serfs didn't just work the lands of the nobility. Many of them worked church lands and holdings. So many bishops and abbots not only oversaw their ecclesiastical duties, they were secular rulers. You can imagine how these clerics were torn in their loyalty between the Pope far off in Rome and the much closer secular feudal lord, whether that was a duke, earl, count, or baron, to say nothing of the emerging kings in Europe. When the Roman Empire dissolved in the West, the role and responsibility of civil government often fell to church officials. Most people wanted them to step in. So when feudalism took hold, it wasn't a difficult transition for these religious leaders to be invested with the duties of secular rule. Because bishops, abbots, and other church officials had secular as well as spiritual authority, many of Europe's nobility began to take it upon themselves to appoint those bishops and abbots when vacancies occurred. It's not difficult to see why they would want to instead of waiting for Rome to make the selection. Local rulers wanted someone running things who were amiable to their aims. Also, with the inheritance rules the way they were, with everything going to the firstborn son, a lucrative and influential career as a bishop was a plum job for all those second and third sons. This investing of church offices by secular rulers was called lay investiture because it was done by the laity rather than by ordained clergy. And as you can imagine, it was not something popes were very happy about. Though the details are different today, imagine you're a church member for 30 years. One day your pastor says he's retiring. You expect your denomination or the elders of your church to pick a new pastor. How surprised would you be to find out that the local mayor had picked him? Oh, and by the way, if you squawk about it, well, the police will arrest you and toss you in jail till you learn to shut your yap and go along with a new arrangement. Well, welcome to lay investiture. While Rome, for the most part, opposed lay investiture, because administrating the church all over Europe was a monumental task, for centuries, the popes begrudgingly consented to allow secular rulers to assist in the appointment of church officials. Some of these appointments were wise and provided good and godly men to lead the church in their domains. Other times, nepotism and crass pragmatism saw at the best inept 
and at the worst, corrupt officials installed. The issue became a controversy when the popes decided to rein things in and required that church officials be appointed by the church itself. Secular rulers were no longer allowed to do so. But just because the pope says no to lay investiture didn't mean that secular rulers stopped it. And that's where the brouhaha kicked in. It came to a head in 1076 when Pope Gregory VII and the Holy Roman Emperor Henry IV came to loggerheads over the Archbishop of Milan. Both men proposed different candidates, and both believed that it was his right to appoint the office. The Pope threatened excommunication if the Emperor refused to comply. Henry answered by calling a synod of German bishops at Worms in 1076. The synod deposed Pope Gregory. Well, not to be outdone, Gregory excommunicated Henry and absolved his subjects of any allegiance to him. A deft move, since at the time, Henry and his Saxon nobles were at odds with each other. These nobles then demanded that Henry reconcile with Gregory within a year, or he would have to forfeit his throne. So the emperor was forced to make peace with Gregory in a famous meeting at Canossa. Henry demonstrated his contrition by walking around the castle where the Pope was staying for three days in the snow, barefoot. The Pope reversed the excommunication and received the emperor back into the faith. And that's the end of the story. It's a happy one, right? Well, no, not quite. Henry leveraged his return to favor into a campaign against the Pope. He marched on Rome and set up a new one. Gregory died in exile. Still, Pope Gregory's position on investiture, banning it, eventually prevailed. In 1099, Pope Urban II decreed that anyone who either gave or received lay investiture was excommunicated. In 1105, a moderate compromise was reached at Beck and ratified in the council at Westminster just two years later. Holy Roman Emperor Henry IV was followed by, can you guess? Yep, Henry V. It was during his reign that the papacy ultimately won the investiture struggle. At Worms in 1122, a concordat was drawn up in which the emperor agreed that the church could elect bishops and abbots and invest them with their office. Although elections were to be held in the presence of the king, he was prohibited from influencing the decision by simony or the threat of violence. While it was the church who selected her clergy, it was the secular rulers who handed them the symbols of their authority in the form of a crozier and a ring, representing their role as shepherds of the flock of God and that they were married to the church. By allowing secular rulers a hand in the bestowal of the symbols of the office, it conveyed the idea of the bishop's duty to support the secular ruler. The political intrigues that flowed from this dual loyalty of church officials across Europe, well, it becomes a thing of legend, literally. I'm guessing most listeners have seen at least one movie that captures the intrigues that ruled the political and religious scene at this time. Despite the Concordat of Worms in 1122, there were a few of Europe's nobles who continued to practice lay investiture kind of on the sly. And there were plenty of their appointees willing to go along with them because they were being appointed to some pretty cushy posts. But eventually, lay investiture was set aside as feudal society gave way to the modern world. We're going to round out this episode with a review of an aberrant doctrine that kept resurfacing in the church in both the East and the West. It was an attempt to understand the person of Christ. Adoptionism had an early origin, being advocated by the Ebionites in the 2nd century. 
the famous Gnostic heresiarch Serinthus had taught a form of adoptionism. While the details of adoptionism vary from time to time and place to place, the basic idea is that Jesus was merely a human being who was adopted by God into his role as the Messiah and the Savior. The nature of this adoption, that is, what it affected in Jesus, is where adoptionists differ. That, and when exactly God the Father adopted Jesus the man to become the Son of God. Some think that it occurred at his baptism, others at his resurrection, and still others at his ascension. Now, adoptionists all concur with Jesus' humanity, but they deny his eternal essence as God the Son. They say he became God the Son due to his morally excellent life. The church declared adoptionism a heresy at the end of the second century, but it continued to find a home in the work of several teachers and groups in the following centuries, right up through the Middle Ages and into even some small groups today. The term adoptionism is used to describe another but very different flavor of the idea that arose in Spain during the 8th and 9th centuries. To differentiate it from classic adoptionism, which starts with a human Jesus who becomes the divine Christ by adoption, historians refer to this later heresy as Spanish adoptionism. It begins with God the Son adopting a human form but not really the human nature that went along with it. The first to articulate this view in the late 8th century was Elipandus, the Archbishop of Toledo. His views were quickly seized on by his opponents and declared heretical. His supporters were summoned to appear before Charlemagne, whose clerics were able to persuade them away from their aberrant beliefs. That ought to have been the end of the matter. They had been treated civilly and with respect by the emperor, but... When they arrived before the Pope in Rome, they were publicly humiliated. This seems to have only inflamed the adherents back in Spain, who determined to resist Rome's efforts to rein them in. This came to an unfortunate moment as the church in Spain was at this time dealing with the Moorish Muslim rulers. While adoptionism can rightly be labeled a heresy, especially its earlier manifestation, Spanish adoptionism, well, it's a bit of a more tricky wicket. I'm not going to get into the technical details of the theology, so let me just say that there is in the New Testament some passages in the Gospels and the letters of Paul that seem to speak of Jesus' two sonships. When these passages are viewed through the lens of some of the early church fathers, one can see a subtle nod toward the core ideas that form Spanish adoptionism. It gets back to the issue that we've spoken of here often in Communio Sanctorum, that is, how to understand and then how to articulate the nature, person, and identity of Jesus. Theology is the fine art of making distinctions, distinctions that have to be expressed in words. Finding the exact right word has proven to be the angst-filled work of centuries and some of the keenest minds in history. Though Spanish adoptionism was effectively quelled by the 10th century, it resurfaced in the 11th and the 12th to once again enjoy a moment in the sun and then to be sprayed with some more theological roundup and to die out once more. It's the ancient classical adoptionism that's enjoyed a bit of a resurgence in modern times in a flavor of liberal Christianity. In this brand of adoptionism, Jesus is a man who by his exemplary moral path becomes an enlightened agent for God's spirit to work through. This liberal Jesus isn't a savior so much as an example. 
Thanks for joining us at Communio Sanctorum. We really appreciate your listening and subscribing. Listeners are invited to like the Communio Sanctorum Facebook page and to write a review in the iTunes store. For both Facebook and iTunes, search for History of the Christian Church. Looking forward to joining you next time.